Welcome everyone to the Good Lion Podcast, the show where we do our best to tackle the big questions around faith and culture. Today is a theological deep dive episode. We're diving into a topic that I'm really excited about because it's one that I'm always wanting to learn about. It is the the very <laughs> theologically nerdy topic of eschatology, the end times stuff that makes you want to grab your Bible and just start highlighting everything in red. We're going to learn about progressive dispensationalism today and sort of the nuanced differences between that and then the more traditional dispensationalism that many of us Calvary Chapel folk grew up with in the 80s and 90s. We have two really great guests today. First up, we have my co-host for today. He's going to help us lead the interview, Mike Dente, the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Paris, France. He's a wonderful friend, and I'm blessed to collaborate with him. He's on my team of writers that I get to manage for calvarychapel.com. Very smart guy. He has a master's of theology from Mike. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that school name as an American. What, how do you pronounce that? La Faculté Jean Calvin, oh. or John Calvin University, I guess. Oh, oh well, that, that makes it easier. Well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show, Mike. And then, of course, we have Professor Daryl Bach with us. Daryl, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. Yes, we're very glad to have you here, Daryl. For those of you guys who don't know, Daryl is the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. So he's basically the Yoda of the New Testament <laughs> over there. He's authored around 40 books. Wow, amazing. And Daryl, you've been a massive blessing to me over the years from a distance. I remember growing up in Calvary and appreciating so much about dispensationalism, but then sort of the newspaper theology stuff and the left behind theology stuff getting grafted in there really could be discouraging at times. And so I remember when I discovered a lecture about progressive dispensationalism from you on YouTube, it just was so encouraging to me. So we're glad you're here. We're going to ask you questions about dispensationalism, about the relationship between Israel, ethnic Israel, the church, political Israel, which is a problem that's often like trying to solve a theological Rubik's Cube. We're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff. So Daryl, Thank you for being here. Mike, thank you for being here. Let's uh, let's jump into it. Thank you, Aaron. Sounds great. Okay, well, I guess the best place to start is with the beginning. What is progressive dispensationalism? Yes. <laughs> Well, probably ought to start with what is dispensationalism, because I'm sure most of your people use that word every day in their everyday life. <laughs> uh, and so dispensationalism is really about a stewardship. So the argument is, is that God has managed salvation over time with different stewardship or management arrangements as the scripture unfolds and promise so that, you know, the locus of revelation was in a nation of Israel in the Old Testament primarily. And then in the New Testament, you have this entity called the church, which is transnational and not a national ethnic people alone, but multi-ethnic, multinational. And then, depending on whether you're a millennial or not, some people hold to what's called a millennium, which is an earthly kingdom coming to earth where Jesus returns and rules from the earth in the future. Well, those are different, those are different administrative arrangements for managing salvation. So dispensationalism fun fundamentally is about the management of the program of God in these different structures that God ha will, has, is, and will work through. That's why we're talking about eschatology, because we're looking forward. And so that's it. Then the progressive part of it simply means 
that as God administered this program and as he announced it and he announced it and managed it in part through covenant commitments, he made the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, Abrahamic promised to bless the world through a seed, which involved both a nation and eventually the Christ. Davidic, the idea of there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be an eternal dynasty out of the house of David. And the new that God's going to forgive sins and put the law, his law on people's hearts, which is a way of referring to the spirit. Those three covenants also manage this program. And as you move across the different eras that are represented or the different dispensations, the idea is the gradual fulfillment has progressed as we move from one era to the other and they connect to one another as that builds as opposed to the older form of dispensationalism which tended to suggest that each era was kind of its own thing and in its own box and were kind of separate categories so we introduced into dispensationalism an element of continuity as the promise moves through its realization that traditionally older dispensationalism lacked. Dispensationalism was known as being primarily a theology of discontinuities between those various periods. And we said, no, there are certain things that represent a connected line as you move through from one dispensation to the other. So progressive is not a political term. That's what I was going to ask. (laughs) It's not a pejorative term. It's not designed to suggest that someone isn't progressive isn't progressive. It's just simply a descriptive term about how the program itself unfolds. I I have to ask specifically on that because I I knew that going into this, but I'm just wondering, how often do you get asked that like, wait, progressive? So is that some sort of liberal thing, Professor Darrell? What's going on there? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is, is that when we coined the term back in the late 1980s, the issue of progressive wasn't so prominent as a political term. And so we didn't have this this alternate suggestion coming along, but lately it's been <laughs> more a more common kind of question to ask, which just shows you how much our culture has shifted in 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 my lifetime. You know, the older I get, the grayer I get. One of these days I'm checking out, and when I check out, I'll leave progressive to the ones who are behind me. <laughs> there you go. That's wonderful. <laughs> I, I think, so a question I would go to in this is, it sounds to me just from researching this topic over the last week and your history to it, you were one of the people that helped formulate this progressive dispensationalism, correct? Correct. So it sounds like you are reacting in that formation to some things that you're seeing as being lacking in traditional dispensationalism. It's like there, this isn't enough. This isn't fleshed out enough. There, there's nuances we're not hitting. So we need something more. What is, what have been the reactions to your ideas from more traditional dispensationalists? Have they been positive, uh, or have people been like, Daryl, what are you doing, man? Oh, You're they're so the overwhelmingly happy I can hardly stand really? it. Uh, oh, oh, you know, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being very facetious. No, um, no. We, what, what it was is we were listening to the critiques of the movement and taking those under serious con- consideration. I think being a good theologian means you're a good listener. And so we were listening to those critiques and weighing what was and fair and what wasn't. I was in the business of being deeply engaged in my own doctoral study at Aberdeen in the Gospels, which tended to be in more traditional dispensationalism, 
a set of texts that were either seen as being connected to the law or looking forward to the millennium, but not as deeply connected to our era, which I uh, almost instinctively reacted negatively to because, because, you know, Matthew, Matthew closes with the exhortation to go and teach, teach these things. And the things that he's talking about are the things in Matthew's gospel. So, so there was a disconnect there that just didn't make sense to me theologically. But the distinctions that dispensationalism also was making did make sense to me. And I think washing those out doesn't help us either. You know, one of the tensions, you mentioned the term eschatology. I like to make this point just to, just to, I like to keep people awake, <laughs> um, is we tend to think when we use the term eschatology, we're talking about the last things and the things that are future to us. But in the New Testament, we are in the eschatological era already. It's just unfolding. You know, there's an already dimension to what God has done that's in line with promises that he's kept that represent fulfillment. And then there's stuff that is yet to happen that is yet to come. When we use the term eschatology in our popular speech, we're usually thinking about what I call the second coming eschatology elements or eschatological elements. But there's a whole series of things that God has already done for us that are a part of eschatology as well. And it's that disconnect versus connectedness about eschatology that makes eschatology a tricky topic. Yeah, wow, that's very true. It's funny, the reason for this article is I've been asking a lot of questions about this because coming out of my seminary, which was a covenantal seminary connected with Westminster, we studied something completely different than anything I'd ever learned, you know, kind of growing up in Calvary. So listening to, to what you said and to things that you've said in other podcasts and, and other documents, writing and whatnot, I, I've noticed that you you... You, you tend to not make, or, or maybe you don't tend to lean into hard statements like, well, like in covenantal, covenantal theology, everything is locked into or glued into this covenantal system. Like you said with dispensationalism, that you have these separate moments. But it seems to me that, that you prefer a kind of a, a mixture of the two. That's true. I mean, in the sense that that I think there are elements of covenant theology that make sense and explain what the Bible's doing. I think there are elements of dispensationalism that make sense and explain what the Bible does. And I also think that eschatology has a depth that allows it to have layers. And so it's like, if I can make an analogy, it's like, it's like camera angles at a, at a football match, okay? We all love VAR, right? <laughs> and And... You know, you're asking a question, did the ball totally go over the line so that I have a goal or not? That kind of thing. And you have certain angles of the camera that will not help you with that question. And you have certain angles of the camera that hopefully will answer that question so you can make a decision. And the Bible is multidimensional. And so covenants is one strand that's walking through the bible and that's doing certain things and the dispensations are another element or another layer that are doing certain things and when we pit these readings against one another we're losing something from each side 
So I, so I often talk about theology. Sometimes I say theology, theologians sometimes create problems for themselves by creating an either or out of a both and. And that's what I think we're sometimes seeing. Now, there are bottom line commitments that each of those traditions have that in some cases I think are true and in some cases need to be questioned. And so that's what we were doing in the, with the progressive work. We were, on the one hand, asking questions about the way discontinuity was handled in certain ways and dispensation that cut off the prophets and the gospels, particularly from the ethical throw, flow that runs through the Bible. And we were uncomfortable with doing that. And then on the other side, there are, there are ways in which covenant theology misses some distinctions and misses some discontinuities that also reflect what the Bible is doing and that need our attention. So the hard part of this is that people usually aren't that, how can I say it? They aren't that, they don't have that kind of alacrity in moving from one, one layer to the other. And they tend to get locked in on a layer. And we, and we tend to form things in binaries in which we oppose things to one another rather than looking for their relationships. Yeah. And as a result, that, that makes moving back and forth a little more challenging, which means that everything that we were doing was challenging to everybody. Right. Because there were, you know, we were challenging the traditional dispensationalists on one side on certain things, and we certainly were challenging covenant theologians uh, on the on the other side with certain things that we were doing. We weren't challenging with the same things. What the what the what the dispensationalists didn't like was one thing. What the covenant theologians didn't like was another thing. But we were kind of content to be the little tugboat moving between two islands at war and say, oh, look at that little tugboat. We're going to take shots from both sides. <laughs> and But what we thought we were doing was actually weaving together this combination, this both-and combination that we needed to pay attention to as we move through Scripture. So could we, with progressive dispensationalism, take some of the things we might like with, I think, one of your old colleagues, Dr. Beale, thinking of his picture of the temple in both creation and in revelations and yet at the same time hold to and appreciate some more of the premillennial theology of this the coming kingdom where jesus will will reign one day on the well earth. here's an example where an either or messes us up <laughs> because what we tend to do is we tend to say well there's a literal portrait of the kingdom but that really connotes something more spiritual going on. And we, and we pit those against one another. So I have the material nature of the promise on the one hand, and then I have the spiritual nature of the promise on the other. My contention with someone like Greg Beale isn't to deny some of the things that he's affirming, but to ask what he's leaving out. Mm-hmm. And what he's leaving out is this material dimension and this material realization that pictures in a concrete way some of the spiritual realities that he wants to talk about and highlight. And so I sit there and I go, yes, the church is conceived as a temple, the temple and the picture of God tabernacling with his people who he made in his image. You know, that's part of the biblical portrait as well. I can, I can embrace those things, but God illustrates it concretely. It's like, if I can use an illustration, it's like the last supper, which becomes the Lord's table in which bread and wine very visually, concretely, and materially represent something else that's going on. And, and so you have this history commitment, 
that's been made to Israel about a people and a peace, which is for them among the nations, which gets eventually realized in, I think, a millennium leading into the eternal state before we get to the eternal state, which completes commitments God has made to them and which he has not reneged on. And when we, when we take the spiritual at the expense of the material, we take away from the holistic nature of God's salvation, which is designed to penetrate every part. It's like having the idea of a resurrection without having a resurrection body. Mm. Okay, you don't do that. So that's why I think that's why I said earlier that what has been traditionally in theology an either or approach with the two systems kind of colliding against one another. We were arguing, no, this is a both and element. And don't forget what each element is contributing to the overall portrait. That's great. Yeah, I'm a very big fan of both and paradigms. I think that's helpful. I think we're so, it's so common for us to kind of get entrenched into our systematic theologies and have these boxes where it's like, this is exactly how everything has to be. So I, I appreciate you bringing more nuance into these topics. I, I think before we go further, because just this is my job as host, I'm I'm thinking about our audience and we've got kind of a mixed bag of an audience. We've got seminary students that listen. We've got senior pastors within Calvary that listen. We've also, we've also got a lot of young Christians. We've got high school students. We've got young adults. And for some of them listening, they might be like, I don't, this sounds like another language. What, what is even happening here? So, well, it is a foreign language. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, all, all <laughs> theology a, really is a foreign language. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, so let's say there's a Calvary pastor listening or a young a young student, a college student, let's say, who's within the Calvary movement, and they've grown up hearing sort of a more traditional dispensationalist, pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalism. Like, what's a very simple way that you could say, hey, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I guess, to frame it that way. Well, the simple way to say it is to say most anything that's said about the future and the way the future works as long as we're not getting into the populist dating types of things and that kind of thing, mm. that's very much the same. The The idea that there's a thousand-year rule, Jesus comes back to rule from Jerusalem with a thousand-year reign over all the earth mm. in which peace is established, borders become less important because the world is at peace, that kind of thing. That is That, that traditional view is still intact. And in fact, it is the role of Israel in that program that's part of what's at the heart of dispensationalism that is very much the same. Hmm. Where the difference comes is in, the, is in the current way of reading the Bible. And as I've already alluded to, the ethics of the Bible, et cetera. Because in the older dispensationalism, say when you read the Sermon on the Mount, the argument would be the Sermon on the Mount is an ethic that's for the millennium or for the future. Mm. It, it's it's law-rooted and law-based, mm. and it's in the law era. And so it's a reclamation of what that looks like, et cetera. And so the Gospels were kind of walled off mm. to a degree. It was very selective and actually a little bit inconsistent, but they were walled off from the ethics of what was going on in the rest of the Bible. And people were wrestling with, well, why does the gospel talk about the kingdom and Paul talks about the church? You know, things like that. Fo follow those follow up on that. So, so would you say that uh -huh. a more traditional dispensationalist, when it comes to ethics, would lean more towards Moses and the Mosaic law? 
Well, yeah. what they would do actually is they would they would lean hard into the epistles. Mm. Okay, mm. the epistles are where you get your church ethics from. The gospels reflect an ethic that has a law background and may even anticipate the time when Jesus comes back and some Jewish features come mm. back, and so it has a little more of a legalistic a, a law a law background. Legalism's not the right term. <laughs> a law background for the way in which it's applied Mm. in the future. And that's why you walled it Mm. off. But my point is Jesus's ethics and his teaching and the way he encourages his believers to walk as his disciples didn't make those distinctions. He's anticipating where he's taking people. He's not just thinking about the era in which he lives in with his work still to be done. And so there's a continuity between what you're getting in the prophets, what Jesus is teaching, what the church is supposed to model, and what will be in the future. Mm-hmm. And so that is, that's the continuity that we were trying to reclaim. When I came to Dallas, when I came to Dallas to teach, a lot of the teaching was focused on the epistles. All our required courses in New Testament were focused on the epistles. That's still true today. Mm-hmm. But the reason I was hired and brought into the department was to kind of reclaim and develop a theology of the Gospels at the school. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's kind of been one of my roles here is to make the Gospels important. And, and of course, even that was done selectively mm-hmm. because in our tradition, anyone who's familiar with traditional dispensationalism will know that your two key Gospels are Matthew and John. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Matthew, from a Jewish perspective, John, because he tells, gives us kind of the whole enchilada uh, <laughs> without, any, without any difficulties. And so those became the two key Gospels. Mm. What's interesting is in the Reformed tradition, this may be an oversimplification, but I'll go with it. In, in the Reformed tradition, really like the Gospel of Luke. Mm. Okay. Mm. And so, so I'm sitting here focusing on Luke because, one, Luke is the most ethical of the Gospels. It has more teaching, a wide array of ethics. 50% of the parables that we have from Jesus come from Luke alone. Mm. So, so, so that kind of emphasis. And so I'm asking myself, how do, I, how do I get continuity across the Gospels and think about what their theology is in relationship to the rest of the New Testament? Mm. And so that's, that's actually been a key part of, of what I've done professionally. And the role that I've had here on our Dallas campus as I've worked with both the Gospels and historical Jesus questions, both to deal with the skepticism that often comes with those conversations. So I, I just got to say about that, that that is so interesting to me. And so it's so compelling to hear kind of the background behind how this development came to be because I'm right there with you when it comes to the ethics of Jesus. I think they're central. And growing up in Calvary, honestly, it was always presented that way, at least in the Calvary circles I was in. I was interviewing Nick Cady about eschatology. He's a pastor within our movement, and he has a lot of knowledge on this. And he, he actually says that he thinks most Calvary pastors today are progressive dispensationalists. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff that you were saying, it it, to me, it really brings to mind my favorite aspect of eschatology because I am not a big es- eschatology guy. I don't major on it. When it comes to the futurism stuff, I don't tend to obsess over it. But my favorite aspect is what what is called, as you know, 
inaugurated eschatology, you know, and, and this right. idea of, you know, Jesus is king here and now while we wait for the future final kingdom to be here. The kingdom is, is now here where the church is, where the king is, the kingdom is. And so the idea of the Sermon on the Mount being like Jesus's kingdom manifesto, where he's telling people, hey, if you're going to be a citizen of my kingdom while you wait for it to finally arrive, here's how you live. Like, you know, kingdom citizens they don't just not commit adultery. They're so committed ethically to not objectifying women and treating them like sisters that they don't even lust. You know, it's this, this groundbreaking thing. So to, to me, I think when I was listening to that lecture where you were talking about it on YouTube, the one that I heard, it, it, all those dots were connecting for me. And I was like, this is, I'm, I'm curious. Cause I, my guess yeah. is, my guess is that lecture is one I did at Laidlaw in New Zealand. I may be wrong about that. I'm not sure. Um, but that at least was the first one that I did mm. that, that dealt with this. They invited me on campus because they had no clue what progressive dispensationalism was. And I've referred to that lecture because I have a long relationship now with Laidlaw that started with this lecture. And I referred to that. I was a little bit like an animal being displayed at a zoo. <laughs> you know, they were trying to figure out what is this thing that, that I'm talking about? Can you can you help us understand what this what this thing is? It was Laidlaw College in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, that's the lecture. Wow, that's the lecture I'm talking about. And I was literally invited in because they had no they went they had they had they had an impression of dispensationalism on the one hand, and they had absolutely no clue what progressive dispensationalism was. That was just an alien entity as far as they were wow. concerned. And so they invited this person from a foreign land to come in and talk about this foreign theology and try and make sense out of it and to help them understand it in relationship to the covenantal theology background that was that was there at the school. That's great. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. We've heard taught in, in even in Calvary circles and other circles, this idea that there are some things that are particularly for Israel and then other things that are for the church. And depending on the, the speaker or the moment, we have this idea that there is two people of God, even to the point where I've heard it preached that the, the Gentile church will at some point even be completely subservient to Israel and and in the whole plan of God. And, and so I guess one of the things that I've often struggled with, honestly, how, how do you read it? Do you read it as one person, one people of God or two people of God? Sorry about the well, grammar on that question. There's <laughs> one question. people of God who have been reconciled to one another. And because of that reconciliation, there's also distinctions within the people of God. And so again, I can form this as an, as an either or, is there one person, people of God or two people of God, or I can form it as a both and. But here the both and is there's one people of God, but to, to make clear that this is a reconciled community and relationship, we never forget who we were and who we are. Yeah. And so it's Jew and Gentile in the one new man, mm -hmm. if I can say it that way. And there are certain things that involve a role for Israel vis-a-vis -vis the Gentiles. But here's, here's the thing that I also say, and that is, but this is not an Israelite nationalism that we're talking mm -hmm. about. This is a set of promises in which Gentiles have been fully invited in 
to participate at all levels. So even though Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and rules from Jerusalem, everyone is equal. My illustration here, and this is, this is great, Michael, because you're in France, okay? My illustration here is the European Union, okay? The European Union is made up of many nations, right? They're all Europeans, all right? Everyone who's in the European Union is a European, but some people are French, some people are German, some people are Italian, I don't know what to do with the British. I, they they're in their they're they're in their own deal. You know they they're not in now. But anyway, I guess they I don't I don't know what what they're 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 European adjuncts or something. But anyway, <laughs> but but the whole point here is is there's a, there's a dual layer of identity. There's the bigger entity that you're a part of, but there's also who you are and who you contribute to as a part of that entity, and both are applicable and both work. But everyone has all the benefits, you know, everyone participates in the new covenant. Everyone participates in the blessings that come from Messiah. Everyone participates in forgiveness of sins. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit, that, that kind of thing. That's, I think, the way to think about that space. Thank you. It's, I've wanted to hear that for a long time. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, if, if you would humor me, I, I'd love to share where my thought process on this has been and then just give you the opportunity to like eviscerate it if it's bad, <laughs> um, you know, but the, the thought process I've come to on this has been when I think of who, who is God's people, it always seems to be this thread of those who obey Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, like Yahweh's people are the Israelites who are following him through the wilderness. And he's got this big master plan of human redemption. They don't understand that. Like they don't, they don't, they can't see mm-hmm. the cross. But the reason he's leading them through the wilderness and to the promised land is because he's trying to set up this kingdom where then the Messiah can be born and the world can be saved. So, you know, I think of God's people are, are the, the Israelites who are obeying him you know, not perfectly, they're messing up all over the place, but they're following him to this destination. And then when I get to the Messiah, Jesus being born, and then I get to this opportunity now for Jews and Gentiles to follow him, God's people to me are the Jews and the Gentiles who follow Yahweh, continuing down that path of redemption and accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. So to me, like God's people is not an ethnic thing. It's an obedience thing. It's it's who is joining with him on this mission to rescue and redeem the earth. So that that's where I'm at, but I don't know how accurate that is or if that is, if that fits. Well, I, I think generally speaking, yeah. that's where you, that's certainly where you end up. And that certainly is a core definition that God's real people are the people who are responsive to mm-hmm. him, who have faith in him in any era. That's certainly the starting point. But there are also hints in the old Testament that something is going on because you have, even though you have this focus on Israel, and really the, the first five books of the Bible, and particularly Genesis and Exodus, are the development of the idea of Abraham's going to have a seed, and that seed is a particular people and a particular nation initially. Okay, You get the whole formation of the story of where did the 12 tribes come from, which is really what the first few books of the Bible are all about, the way in which that emerged. But there are little hints along the way. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning. Hmm. Because you get a book like Ruth, or you get a mission like the one Jonah is on, which he initially says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then, and then God says, well, let me have you have a, take a little vacation 
in the sea for a few days. And when you come back, I think you'll think differently, you know? And, and so you've got that kind of, of little indications along the way that the thing's gonna go bigger. You get Isaiah creating this vision of a highway that's gonna run from Egypt through Israel to Assyria. Okay, not exactly. Egypt and Assyria weren't always seen as friends to Israel. And, and there's a hint that there's something that's going to go on. They're all going to be called my people. Mm -hmm. That's Isaiah 19. So, so it's that combination of things that's going on. So you're right. It isn't automatically. Yeah, I think, in fact, John the Baptist said as much. He said, don't think simply because you're, you're descended from Abraham that, that you're God's child. God is able to make children out of these stones over here. The issue is response. Absolutely. Right. No, that's, that's helpful. But in, in Calvary, we've always been taught that, that God does have a special purpose and plan, not just for spiritual Israel, but for ethnic Israel. So in, in your view, you know, we, we all know what the plan was for ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. Now we're in a, a time period where ethnic Israel is largely atheist and actually like secular, liberal, progressive. <laughs> so like where, where does ethnic Israel, nation state Israel fall into God's plan right now? And then when it comes to the end, end times, like the final things that happen, I'm just asking what your view is. Like, what do you think God's plan for ethnic Israel is in the end? Well, he, God never gives up on Israel and has never given up on Israel, even when she's been unfaithful. Mm -hmm. That's the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is I'm going to remain connected to you and continue to pursue you until you are responsive to me. And then you have Romans 11, which, which, which in the midst of saying, well, there's a remnant that still exists out of Israel that is faithful to God, but there's coming a day when a fullness of the people of Israel is going to come in. And, and in that way, all Israel is going to be saved. So God is never giving up on the ethnic people of Israel. They actually are a little microcosm of God never giving up on the world, mm. that God never gave up on the world. In fact, Israel was his answer, initial answer, for dealing with redeeming the world. And, and so, so these two tracks are kind of running together side by side as you move through, through the scripture. Mm. And so, so the reason ethnic Israel has value is because we know biblically the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And the end of the story is there are going to be ethnic Israelites who are going to be brought back into the fold, if I can say it that way. And, and thus, Israel continues to have value. The reason some people struggle with the future of Israel in the Bible is because they don't see the end of the Bible connecting to Israelites mm -hmm. in the future, and thus they've dropped out of the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why how you view eschatology actually does matter at certain points. I'd like to ask a question about the Abrahamic covenant, which links into what, what you've just been talking about. Now, in covenantal theology, they view it much different than Dwight Pentecost and Things to Come, mm -hmm. which is the first real theological book that I read, and I probably shaped a lot of my thinking. What is it for you? How do you read into that? Or how do you read the Abrahamic? Well, again, planet? you're dealing with the ambiguity of the term seed in the Abrahamic covenant. Ultimately, the seed is Christ. 
Okay, Galatians 3 tells us that, and it's singular in terms of what triggers its fulfillment. But you can't read the Old Testament and not realize that seed is also corporate. I'm going to make your seed like the stars in the sky. There isn't huh. just one star in the sky. I'm going to make your, your seed like the sands of the sea. There isn't just one piece of sand by a sea. That'd be one heck of a big rock. Okay. So, um, so there's something going on there in which there, remember I talked about eschatology having layers. There's a corporate national layer of what's going on and what's going on between the nations that's in that promise. And then there's the individual redemptive layer of what's going on, which is triggered by Christ. And then Christ is the one who gathers the national layer together and the nation's layer and pulls it all together. So again, I'm, I'm doing theology not in this either-or mode in which I'm having to choose, but I'm in a correlative mode in which I'm saying, what's the relationship between this piece of what's happening in Scripture and that piece that's happening in Scripture, and how do you connect those dots? Mm. Now, so do you see an either-or in the interpretation of Galatians 6? 16, I think, National uh, Israel. is a hard passage because because really either reading in context makes sense. Yeah. And so, uh, but my guess is, is when he talks about the Israel of God, he's thinking about Israel still in its pretty traditional sense because because he says, even the Israel of God. So it's like, I'm, I'm t- I've got the, my view on what's going on with Christ in all of what God is doing, but it even applies to this group. So I, I could read Galatians 6 as a shorthand for what Paul goes on to explain in Romans 9 to 11. So just for clarification, when it comes to Israel's fate in the end, ethnic Israel, you're, you're holding to this idea, which those of us in Calvary, it's, we're, we're not a stranger to, but the idea of God's eventual revival of Israel, like them yes. turning back to him. Yeah. Not necessarily every single Israelite human, but a, a great majority of them. So much so that you can say Israel has responded to God. Yeah, th- there you go. That's, that's a fantastic. question within there's kind of two different branches of the calvary family here in cgn that's one branch we kind of have this environment where we're not necessarily everybody's not necessarily pre-trib everybody's pre-millennial but some people are pre-trib and some people aren't so how what would that revival of israel look like in the pre-trib version and then a non-pre-trib version not very different i don't think Hmm. Because in the end, the issue is how are people responding to what's going on in the tribulation period? Hmm. So whether the church has been ga- whether that which was the church has been gathered before that period or after it's all done makes little difference to who now is being incorporated as a result of what's happening in the tribulation. Got it. So in one sense, I don't think that would end up being that that conversation is almost a sidebar Hmm. in terms of how in terms of how Israel and the Jews are being brought together in that period at the end. Okay, that's helpful. 
I think where I'd want to go to next is just uh, I want to touch on a little bit on the idea of newspaper theology because that that for me okay. as a young guy growing up in Calvary that that was one of the things that frustrated me and people would say stop being such an annoying millennial but it's like I, I'm sorry I can't help it when I would see <laughs> my fellow pastors just get so wrapped up in the evening news and the political things going on. And sort of interpreting every single little thing that happened regarding Israel or Iraq or Iran and trying to like, you know, like like solve the mystery <laughs> constantly. Like it just it, to me, it, it seemed like a distraction. But I'm curious for you because you, you're in the dispensationalism world. Well, you're younger than I am, but my hairline is a result of doing this. Okay? <laughs> I was going to I was going to um, ask, how do you watch the evening news when something about Israel well, I, comes on? <laughs> how do you respond to it? Well, I'm, uh, what I tell people is here's the tension that everybody's dealing with. On the one hand, Scripture says we're to be ready for Christ coming in any moment. Mm. He come at any moment, okay? He comes at any moment, then what is the current configuration in which that might play out, okay? That's where your newspaper dispensationalists have been parked even before there was black ink going on a newspaper, <laughs> all right? They've been there for a long time, and, and they've always wrestled with that People have speculated about who is the Antichrist even before dispensationalism was formalized. Okay. And the reason they're doing it is because the scripture says it could be at any moment at any time. On the other hand, the batting average for those who have predicted that this is the end currently is not very good. Right. <laughs> okay. It's like it's like an offer. Okay. Yeah. Ofer, I don't know. 300, 600, uh, <laughs> 2023. I mean, so, so you sit there and you go, that should give you pause. That should produce a pretty healthy dose of humility about whether you're going to be able to figure it out or not. Yeah. So most of these things get seen, if I can say it this way, after the fact and not mm. before they happen. Yeah. And so, so for me, I've always I've also always been a little bit uncomfortable. And then the the here's the backside of that. The backside of that is what we're going through a little bit now, which is there have been so many predictions with so much certainty expressed about this is it and this is what it's going to look like that when the configuration changed and then the story and the explanation changed, you get to the point of going, well now what do I believe? Mm. And is this all just totally off the wall? Mm. And and so, I, you know, I remember when the common market and the European Union, we got, Europe's always in this story, was 10 nations, okay? And that was connected to certain tax. Mm. And and then the, you know, the European Union, I mean, the European Union's been undergoing church growth, apparently, because there's more than 10 nations now, all right? And, and, and so... You know, now what do you do? And you watch people try and reconfigure that in terms of how they try and explain it. And it may be that the answer is maybe that's the wrong way of approaching the question. Maybe maybe looking down to that level of detail and that level of what you might call granularity isn't the way to be reading and thinking about reading these passages. Yeah, no, I would I would tend to agree. It just seems like a, a distraction because it, we only have so much time. Like we we have our people on, you know, an hour on a Sunday or an hour on a Wednesday if we're, you know, one of the churches that does a midweek service. And like they are exposed to talk radio and news and podcasts and YouTube videos. Like they're getting so much of the world. So to me, it's like the better usage of that time 
is teaching them about the way of Jesus and the ethics of Jesus and the, the kingdom of Jesus. That That's just my conviction, but I... Now, I'll agree with you, but let me, let me problematize it a little yeah, bit because do. here's the other half please of the do. equation. The other half of the equation is that one of the things that drew attention to dispensationalism was something dispensationalists were saying long before it even seemed feasible that this could happen, and that is that Israel would replant itself in the land. Mm. Okay, yeah. you're talking about um, uh, before the 1940s, right? Before 1948. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, before 1948, back in the 18th and 19th centuries, and people were reading their scripture. There's going to come mm. a time when Israel's going to be in the land, and Jerusalem's going to matter. <laughs> you know, as a as a as a as an Israelite city, okay? And people were looking at the current configuration of the world and went, how in the world is that going to happen? There's no way. So that so that when Israel ended up in the land in 1948 and became independent and then, in my lifetime, survived efforts by some Arab countries to overrun them, et cetera, all right, all of a sudden, that theology must make sense. Yeah. There must be something in it that's true. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a big granular piece, okay, that is a part of the theology. So so it, uh, we were joking earlier that they were over, but in, in one sense, on a certain point, they were very right, mm. at least seemingly so. And so, and when you get those elements, that actually fueled interest in dispensationalism for several decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I've always heard that event talked about growing up and i think that yeah there's that, that that's something that should be celebrated that's something that's amazing that god did that yeah and and so so it isn't it isn't like even though they didn't get the they didn't get who the antichrist was right they didn't get the time of when jesus is coming back right etc this they seem to have 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 had something that that's on target yeah no you're spot mm-hmm. on i i've got one more follow-up question to this and then mike i'm going to pass you the ball because I'm sure you got things that you want to ask, but uh, here's here's my last question on this. So I want to be I want to be sensitive here. I have here in Calvary like many friends who are pastors who are dear friends of mine who they they love you know at least once a year doing some sort of service that is a what's called a prophecy update where it's like let's analyze everything going on in the news and let's talk about how it fits into prophetic scripture and revelation and in other things and so I don't. I don't want to diss that because I've got friends that are not dispensationalists and they're just they're just like that is such a joke man and I'm like hold on like there's good intentions behind this I think but I would just ask you what would you say to pastors listening that do prophecy updates how would you speak to that in in a way that maybe encourages the good intentions but maybe points out some of the, the things to be cautious about be careful how you frame it that would be the first thing I would say be careful how you frame this Remember that the prophecy update that was given in 1980 was probably wrong. <laughs> and here, here's here's the tension, again, I'm back to something I said earlier, but maybe I'll say it more vividly this time. Here's the tension I think everyone is dealing with. On the one hand, as I said, Scripture says Jesus could come at any time. If he comes in the current time, here's the current configuration that could play out that could represent the realization of what Jesus is about to do, if I can say it that way. But we could be down the road in the year 3000, having a prophecy update in 3023, okay? My guess is that will look different. (laughs) And so, because we don't know when he's going to come back. And Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, 
except for the father. Okay, now that's what I call a son's exemption. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so uh, there's a part of me that says, as nice as it is to try and figure out what's going on, et cetera, uh, that's, not, that's not my job. That's not my pay grade. I'm supposed to be faithful in the meantime. Now, I am supposed to keep look, and I am supposed to be expectant, mm-hmm. okay? Those types of things uh, I'm supposed to have. But I'm nowhere called to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, that's the line that I think you have to have when you have these conversations. They have to be, there has to be a little bit of a caveat here about, about how to view this. And the trouble is when you wrap the word prophecy around it, and you wrap the word prophecy around one's interpretation of it, mm. that's not the same thing either. Because mm. my reading can be wrong. Yeah, that's good. Mike, I'm passing you the ball. I just have to think about that for a second because it was really good. (laughs) (laughs) It it actually joins another one of the questions that we had. Sometimes in the Calvary movement, when, and not just the Calvary movement, in other movements, I've heard termed other thoughts than a very traditional dispensational view as somebody that's moving towards liberal theology. Mike, do you mean when somebody moves away from dispensationalism, like towards maybe more of an amillennial view, it's, they can be easy. Exactly. Like, like I, I know, for instance, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, and, and in my opinion, the way that they do a lot of their stuff, it's like no matter whether you're Calvinist or Calvary or what, like whatever you are, yeah. pretty much everybody, I mean, even Catholics, like everybody can get something from the Bible Project. But I, I have noticed that Absolutely. they tend to have more of an mill leaning in their eschatology. I don't think yeah. they beat people over the head with it. But I've heard some people within the tribe go like, oh, man, they're leading us towards liberalism. And so, yeah, what, what, do, you, what do you think? Yeah, for, for me, for me, liberalism is like Boltman and, and Richel and, and Pannenberg. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm just confused by the, this whole question. So I guess coming back to the actual question, is the opposite of dispensational theology liberal theology? Could you help us define Here's, those terms? First, let me answer this in two parts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it first by saying this is why someone might claim that, and this is what they ought to be saying, okay? So the reason someone claims that, and I've heard this in dispensational tradition going way, way back. I even remember conversations with, with Dr. Walbert where he has injected that perception into the equation, and the re, uh, Dr. Walbert was well-known dispensation, former president of the school here, so well-known name. Anyway, what he, what the way he would frame it is, to the extent you walk away from the literal interpretation of Scripture, mm-hmm. and you step back from what it is the Scripture appears to be saying on the surface, with an alternate explanation, and you spiritualize the text, which is what Amulus are accused of doing. That step back from what the Bible really means is liberalism, okay, as they're defining. So yeah. that's, that's where I think it's coming from. Well, the way I would say it is, is that, is that this, this, is a hermeneutical, this is a hermeneutical move that's been made within, within at least some strands of covenantal theology and some strands of amillennialism 
these people believe the Bible in many cases just as fervently as a dispensationalist does. Yeah, I mean, true. they're they're very conservative about about the authority of the scripture and that I mean Westminster is is known for its apologetic defense of the Bible and that kind of thing as a covenantal school. So they're not they're not liberal in the classical sense that you raised it. Okay. But there is a different hermeneutic at work mm. that is that is impacting the way the Bible's being read. So the way I would tend to say this, I, I wouldn't put the word liberal on this. I would just say there's a different hermeneutical judgment that's being made. Now, I do think there can be a risk in if I begin to move heavily in that direction without good justification, then all the elements that lead to liberalism are in place. Mm -hmm. um, but, but just because someone who's very, very conservative is Amil, uh, I'm not going to say they're a liberal. Yeah, that's good. I, I think you, what I'm hearing you say is it comes down to authority. And so if somebody is taking a more amillennial view, but they're still holding to Scripture as the authority and, and Jesus as the authority and not, you know, politics or emotions or, you know, whatever, their their own thoughts on things, that they can still have a conservative view that's at least what I'm hearing you say. And, and to me, like, I, I... Yeah, I think it's a good way. It's a good way to, to, to say in different words what I'm trying to say. To me, yes. I look at the Bible Project, and yeah, like, I do see a more awe-mill eschatology, but to me, they have one of the highest levels of respect and reverence for the authority of God and what he revealed in Scripture. So, yeah, that... Now, I'm not as familiar probably with the Bible Project as you are, but my if my knowledge of those guys is correct, they came out of Western Seminary... Yeah. That's a dispensational school. Yeah. So it may be that they're working at such a high level of abstraction yes. without a commitment to a particular eschatology that what is frustrating people is what they are not saying That's, because they're focused on what they are saying. Yes. And they may not be amillennial at all. You know, that, that is probably a very astute way to summarize all of the, pe the, the people who are the most frustrated about the Bible Project. It's, why aren't they saying penal substitutionary atonement? Why aren't they saying this is exactly what hell is? Why, you know, it's, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they want yeah, them yeah. to be explicit. That lines up with their tribe's way, their their tribe's language, and they're trying to communicate the Bible to people that have never read the Bible before. They're trying exactly right. They're using exactly. They're trying to they're trying to put the foreign language of what Christianity is for the person who's never darkened the door of a exactly. church right. in categories one that they can understand, and two without the level of detail that would overwhelm them if they tried to go yeah. there. Absolutely. Mike, did you want to ask that question? I think you had a question about the rapture. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, yes. Just got so caught up in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I want to jump out of the screen and give you the impression the rapture just took oh place. Oh, my but go God. Ahead. Where, did, where did Dr. Bach go? Except I go like that. Anyway, There's just go a ahead. blue shirt there. <laughs> and some glasses. Oh. <laughs> okay, this one. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what... In your view, what's the difference between the rapture and the resurrection? And if I can add to that, if you see them as two separate things, do you also see a disembodied state in the interim? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting mix of questions. The rapture is technically defined as the time when God takes 
all living people in the church up to his presence. Obviously, if it's pre-trib, it happens before the tribulation. If it's post-trib, it happens in the midst of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. So that that's an event that way. And, and even though it assumes the resurrection and the transformation from a physical body into a spiritual presence, it actually never says that. Mm. So, so that's the first thing. The resurrection is, technically speaking, looking at the time in which we collect our spiritual bodies. The idea of a disembodied spirit is the idea of, I have a sense of being in God's presence, but I may not have received my resurrection, final resurrection body yet, okay? So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, okay? The one thing we didn't get with that verse is a photograph of what the thief on the cross is gonna look like <laughs> on that day, okay? Uh, and, and so you know, no Polaroid was provided, that's an old illustration, Okay, uh, you know, uh, no 4K digital was provided <laughs> with what that what with what that was going to look like, and so you know, for some people, depending on their theology, the afterlife, and this is where this discussion comes in, where we we have an awareness of God and His presence, but we haven't been given our resurrection body until we're all redeemed. Okay, so that's coming later. So those are separate steps in the end time individual eschatology. I sometimes tell people eschatology is both corporate and it's also individual. There's an individual eschatology about what's going to happen to me in the end. And th these are parts of the discussion that are part of the individualized eschatological story. And so in my mind, there's a distinction between, between my state, say, upon death versus the, the resurrection body I will ultimately end up with one day when I share all the benefits of salvation that's coming when everybody receives those benefits. Mm -hmm. So that that's a very convoluted answer, <laughs> but I think it, it deals with the various elements of what that question represents. And if that wasn't clear to anybody, once you die and time is passed, it'll all sort itself out. <laughs> that sounds answer. like a really good uh quick answer for most eschatological questions, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for that, Daryl. Dr. Bach, one of my friends who I think might have been one of your former students. I'm not sure. I know he he's, he appreciates you a ton, but he he's a pastor down in San Diego, friend and mentor of mine, and he wanted me to ask you if you'd be willing to engage with a piece that Scott McKnight wrote called The Late Great Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. I'll read just a, a quick quote from it. So this is from Scott McKnight. When most people hear the word dispensationalism, they think of the version published by Hal Lindsey, and I would add represented in the Left Behind books. He goes on to say, the three elements are, first, the work of God on earth with Israel as an earthly reality, and the work of God with a spiritual people of God, the church, who will be raptured. This earthly spiritual division is only discussed among scholastic dispensationalists, and in my reading of dispensationalist books, the best explanation I've ever seen of this earthly spiritual element was in the book by Daryl Bach and Craig, Craig Blazing called Progressive Dispensationalism. So he gives you a good compliment there. Mm -hmm. And then he says the problem is most people who talk about dispensationalism don't ever talk about this earthly spiritual 
division. How would you respond to that? Do you think he's on the money there? Yeah, I do think that there's an element of division between the earthly and the spiritual that hasn't been healthy in the movement, mm -hmm. and it has allowed a kind of a escapism and a lack of engagement with the society around me. And when people complain about this is one of several books that are coming out, right? There's another one that's just come out called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism that runs very much down these lines as well. And and dispensationalism has been the has been the boogeyman for evangelicalism for decades. <laughs> so we're used to the space. Um, and and some of the criticism is true. Some of it we've already discussed with the idea of, you know, predicting the future and that kind of thing. The second is the tendency that argument is it creates a theology that is unengaged, doesn't care about issues of justice and what goes on in the world, et cetera, that kind of division. To which my reply is, you're going to get a kick out of this. My reply is, I would not have the current job I have at Dallas Seminary if that were true. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not only senior research professor of New Testament studies, I am executive director for cultural engagement at the Howard G. Hendricks Center mm -hmm. for Christian Leadership. I host a podcast called The Table, which is Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, which is a nice way of saying we discuss anything and everything. <laughs> and we're talking about engagement. We're talking about ethics. We're talking about themes of justice. We're talking about race, sexuality, et cetera. And we're not doing it from a standpoint that simply says, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, so I'll just wait until Jesus returns. No, we're thinking about how the church is supposed to function in the world and be a witness for Christ missionally in the midst of in the midst of that reality of living in the midst of a fallen world. So to the extent that 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 critique of dispensationalism ignores those realities, it is an imbalanced critique of dispensationalism. Now, to the extent that some of what he's talking about in the popular literature that has formed a certain ethos for a lot of dispensational communities that element of the critique is fair, and, or at least has the potential to be fair. But most people that I know who are dispens dispensationalism drove much of the global mission movement mm. for decades. Mm. And, and, and so the, it, it's a selective reading of the tradition is the point that I'm making. Mm. And, and it's also a very lopsided reading of the tradition and its effect on if you pull dispensationalists out of the evangelical movement and ask what its history would be like in the last hundred years without that, it would be a completely different history. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And I'm sure that's encouraging to a lot of our audience to hear you say that. That's, that's really good. I, I'd, I'd love to push it further and, and kind of acknowledge, you know, when McKnight read his piece, I read through it and I was making notes. He discusses how Lindsay's the great late or the late great planet Earth and its popularity and the impact that it had on dispensationalism and its popularity among Christians. And so, like, I can speak to just as someone who grew up in a dispensationalist environment and I'll just say this beforehand, like I, when you're a young Christian and you grow up at a church, 
like you don't care about theology. Most young Christians don't care. And so you're just you're just picking up your views from random adults and radio broadcasts and things that you listen. You just want to date a dispensationalist. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But like I know as a young Christian, like probably up until the point I was like 17 years old, these are some of the views that I just picked up from being in that environment. One was no one should care about creation or the environment because it's all going to burn. Modern day political Israel has Yahweh's seal of approval and they can do no wrong and any military action taken by them is sanctioned by the Lord. So if they go and bomb somebody, you know, we don't have to think too hard about it because it's just, oh, they're Israel. So they're fine. The world is going to hell in a handbasket and is getting worse and worse with no redemptive value. The church is designed to isolate and protect us from the culture rather than build us up and send us out as missionaries. Anyone that conservatives don't like could be the Antichrist. (laughs) Caring about other countries is evil and globalism, and we should constantly obsess over the news because it all holds secret keys to unlock the meaning of Revelation prophecy. So... Can you engage with that a bit? Like, I, I'm not alone. I talk to my peers who grew up in the same environment, and, like, we all kind of picked this up. How do you view the impact of, you know, how Lindsay and, and Tim LaHaye and Left Behind on Well, I, I think that actually that and some of the seeds that that represents we're still living with today. Mm-hmm. The backside of that is that's why I do what I do. <laughs> uh, what I do, what I do is an, is an, is an attempt to say that, there is a dispensational theology that recognizes the fallenness of the world, that recognizes there's a judgment to come, that recognizes the people who are separated from God, you know, are, are, have, a, have a, a less than pleasant fate awaiting them, okay, all those things. But I also understand that the Bible has me engaged in a calling that is reflected in the Great Commission it doesn't tell me to go into the church and make disciples, but to go into the world and make disciples. Mm-hmm. And I also understand that the mission of the church is to live in such a way, and the calling of the church as a community, not just me as an individual, is to live in such a way that the contrastive way of what it means to be in touch with God becomes a means of drawing people to God. And I tell people, if you will listen to the testimony of people who did not grow up in a Christian home who've come to the Lord, they almost all have this feature in them somewhere in the testimony. And that is, I met I met so-and-so. I don't mean so-and-so in the way we often use it, but I met this person, and they were a Christian, and they lived differently than mm-hmm. I did, and they got my attention. And I became curious about what made them different, et cetera. And they, they're living out their lives missionally as Christians, and I know many, many dispensationalists who've lived out their life that way, who've been the source of that kind of a result. Mm. And so, so yes, there are these potential shortcomings. They're there, they're real. The critique is, is an important one in one sense. But there also are a lot of people, this is why I mentioned the missional movement earlier, that the problem with dispensationalism, if I can say it this way, at least in some cases, has been We've been quite good at global missions, but we've been less concerned about how to minister to our neighbor. Mm, and, and, and we need to be able to do both. If we showed the same kind of effort and compassion that many dispensationalists put into global missions in terms of actually serving and ministering to our communities, the church and our society would be better off. Wow. That's powerful. I wondered, too, about the accusation sometimes of fear-mongering on the part of dispensationalists. Mm. 
Would you react to that? Well, I, I think it depends on, well, we, we got to define the fear-mongering and what we're talking about. On the one hand, if we're talking about a fear-mongering that says to the world, you're accountable to God and there's going to be a judgment coming one day, that you're going to be responsible for your choices, et cetera, that's not fear-mongering, that's telling the truth. That's the Bible. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. So that's one thing. But if fear-mongering is I have to fear the world mm. and what's going on around me, and so I've got to seize for as much control as I, there's a passage that I urge people to please believe. And it's first John four, four greater is he who is in us than he who is in the yeah. world. Amen. My security comes because I know I'm in the hands of the creator God. Mm. There is no force in the world greater than that relationship. Now I may be persecuted. I may even in certain parts of the world, in certain situations, be at risk for my life. I may even be a martyr for the faith. All that could happen. But I don't have anything to fear in that, okay? Because we're here for a fleeting short time is the way the Bible describes it in comparison to the eternity that we spend in his hands and in his care. Yeah. And so, so if the fear-mongering comes from that place, and if the fear-mongering doesn't remember that Jesus said to his disciples in the whole second half of his ministry, if you follow down the way of the cross, you're going to have to bear a cross too. Mm. You're going to have to, you're going to have to expect pushback. You will be treated unjustly. If we don't understand that that comes with the territory, then we'll have a problem. Yeah. That's so good. So good. thinking about the the other side of that too uh, you know sometimes i've heard people talk about judgment and rapture and, and being taken up and and you almost get a feeling of lack of concern for those left behind or That's such a good point you know almost a callousness which just feels like an ethical mm. problem it's mm. very much an ethical problem you know, the idea that the rapture ends up being an escape and and that's and I only see it selfishly, if I can say it that way. Yeah. That is a problem. I mean, we should be motivated. We should be motivated by the fact that and this is, I think, one of the motivations for evangelism. We should be motivated by the fact that the fate of people ultimately is related to how they relate to God. Mm -hmm. And, and so we should be driven by an effort to do as much as we can for as many people yeah. as we can. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, we think that the best way we do that is to talk about it. <laughs> I actually think that one of the most effective ways we can do evangelism is to live it, mm. is to live out the faith that we have. I tell people the armor of God in Ephesians 6, when we're talking about the spiritual war and the cultural war, that is the way Bible defines it is our armors are lived out faith. Yeah. It's not only what we believe, it's how we live. And so so that's that's how you that's how you do it. People often see it. I, I sometimes joke, I'm, I don't know how popular this is in, in Europe, but <laughs> there's a Broadway play here called Hamilton. And in it there's a there's a line in it there's a line, there's a song when when Aaron Burr is meeting Alexander Hamilton first time, it says, 
talk less, smile more. Okay, to which my variation for the church is talk less, show more. And the whole point is we should show by the way we live and by the way we serve the city our care for people and that God cares for people. Jeremiah 29 is the exhortation about serving the city. It's a great passage. It's it's about Israel in Babylon. And I like to remind people that Babylon wasn't the most Christian culture that ever fa- was on the face of the earth. And God's exhortation to the Israelites while they're living in Babylon is to serve the city. Hmm. So that's the calling. And that's missional. That's the point. When I care for my neighbor who doesn't agree with me, which is another way of saying when I love my enemy, which is something Jesus taught and said was distinctive, I am doing missional work. Yeah. That's so Thanks. that's so good. Thank that's you. so helpful. I I you're tapping into something that I deeply feel. I, I feel that the escapism is probably the ugliest part of dispensationalism done wrong when you just think the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket and you got to get away from it. And when you're sitting there and you're watching the news and it's constantly othering everyone and saying, these people, they're savages, they're horrible. Look at what they're doing to your culture and your values and your society. It just builds this thing in you where it's like, oh, I got to get out of here. Come back, Jesus. And and you view those people out there as the ones that are going to face the judgment. I, I remember... In, instead of people to be loved and people that Jesus might just might want to rescue, you know, I, I remember years ago, I saw a Facebook post from a pastor, a dispensationalist pastor that blew my mind. This was a few years ago, but the the U.S. government had bombed Syria for some reason. I can't remember, but I think it was Damascus was getting bombed and he was reporting on it and then saying this is amazing this is awesome that means that this prophecy is happening and this it's getting closer and like all these boomers in the comments were just like hosanna maranatha praise the lord and i was sitting there thinking first off like we've got christian missionaries in damascus like are they okay like there's 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 people that jesus is trying to reach in syria like why are we rejoicing that a city got bombed and to, so to me, that's just the manifestation of the most ugly aspect of not just. Dis- so yeah. let me mention two. Let me mention two texts because now you you're you're messing with everything. <laughs> uh, the first the first is Acts four. In the in Acts four, Peter and John have just come back from being arrested the first at the first time. So this is the first persecution, and the church prays. They do not pray to nuke the enemy. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. They do not pray that the persecution should go away. They pray for two things. They pray for boldness in proclaiming the word of God. And they pray that God would continue to show himself through their work. Okay. Which ended up being miracles, but then we missed something about the passage. Because the whole point of the miracles was to show God cares for people outside the Mm -hmm. church. Okay. So miracles were really a means of showing their service and their care for people. So that's the first text. Second text is this, and I'm going to read it because it's a famous passage, and then I'm going to comment on it. So this is 1 Peter 3, 15 and following. Everyone knows 15, but they don't know what follows it. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect. Keeping good conscience as those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil. And then verse 18 tells why we do it. 
And here's where the curveball is. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And you sit there and you go, all right, we do this because, and we get put in the position of suffering because we model Christ. Okay? When we do that. So that's reason number one. But here's the curveball. Not only does it say the just for the unjust, but then it says this, to bring you to God. So the point here is, is that we were in the unjust category and God exercised his justice for us. Yeah. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Amen. We're never supposed to forget where we came from yes. as we think about sharing the gospel. Yeah. That when our back was turned, God took the initiative and tapped us on the shoulder to get our attention. And when we're engaging with someone who disagrees with us, we're doing the same thing. We're replicating that pattern. Yeah. And we should never forget that we are where we are, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, that's very helpful yeah. in helping think through some of that. In, in France, one of the worst things you can do is have an off-subject topic. <laughs> You're, you, might, you might brilliantly write for, I don't know, you know everything is perfect, but it's all sujet, so it's HS, and that's a zero. We Americans so are all. I'm going to go off about subject. it. Just okay. bring on the rabbit. Bring on the rabbit trails. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> this is the sidebar. <laughs> okay, so I mean, we were just curious if you could differentiate a little bit your view from NT Wright's. Okay, so this is funny because NT Wright and I interact with each other on occasion when public events happen because he speaks in the public square in the UK and why sometimes I am in the states. Obviously, he's much more visible than I am, but still. So we've when the when the Da Vinci Code stuff was happening, when Jesus' gospel <laughs> came out, et cetera, we were emailing back and forth. So uh, Tom is a friend. So, but let me say this: I resonate with most of what he does, particularly the way in which he describes the gospel, the way he thinks about what Judaism was in the first century the way in which that that worked and thinking about not only Judaism from the critique of the New Testament, but Judaism from within, how a Jew saw themselves in the first century, that the challenge of being a Jew without Christ is your commitment to be covenantally faithful and to understand that, all that. I, the, the places where I differ with him are in, is in this area of eschatology and the way in which he has not only not only does he conceive of apocalyptic language differently than I do, he's actually Cardian in the way he views apocalyptic language, by which I mean it's a symbolic way of talking about the cosmic conflict. And, and we shouldn't look for anything literal material in it at all, or at least very little. So, you know, when when we sometimes use the idiom, well, that was an earth-shattering event, okay? The earth is as it was even after we say that, <laughs> right? okay? And so that's the point that he's trying to make. There probably are some passages that work that way, but I don't think that's the way the, the whole nature of the passage works. He and I have had conversations about the second coming in this regard in that I have asked him about about in Acts when Jesus is taken up into heaven at the ascension and the angel says he's going to come back the same way he departed. I've asked him, so how physical is that? How literal is that? Sounds like it's pretty physical and literal to me. 
And we've actually agreed the next time in the UK and we can get together, we can sit down, spend some time talking about that. On so, mic? Yeah. Oh, n- not, not on oh, mic. Okay. No, privately. Got it. No, 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 privately. I'd, whether we talk about it afterwards is a whole nother mm. thing. But anyway, but seriously, most of what he has done has been a real service to the church and is a service to the church. The idea in which he sees salvation as cosmic in its scope, as having a corporate dimension, et cetera. I think he understates the individual aspects of that in talking about salvation. That'd be a second place where I critique him. But the two major differences are the way he sees eschatology and eschatological language. And the second is in the midst of emphasizing the corporate, which has tended to be underemphasized and missed in much biblical discussion about eschatology, I think some of the more individualistic features are still there and still apply. Mm. So I would read Luke 15, for example, which he tends to put in a very corporate light, also is applying at an individual level in a way that I don't hear him do, that kind of thing. Again, it's this either or versus both and thing that we started off yeah. with, which is which is I don't want to choose between the more cosmic way of seeing things and this more individualized, more focused, in some cases, more material way of seeing things. Because I think God is redeeming all of the creation mm. through all mm. its elements. Mm. And, I, and, 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 within, and within the history that he has us living in. And so that would, be, that would be where the difference was. If he was here and you asked the same question of him that you just asked me, you might get the same answer in reverse. <laughs> The problem with Daryl Bach is his dispensationalism. <laughs> it's his eschatology. <laughs> um, that's great. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for me, when I read Wright years ago as a young youth pastor, I was reading, I, I think it was the book, How God Became King. And, and for me, I was able to read it through the lens of a dispensationalist and not adopt the more awe-mill perspectives. Like he, he, for me, he was a gateway drug to the inaugurated eschatology stuff. Like he, he, absolutely. He sent me, no, he, he, very, very good on that area. Yeah. And just, and, and what's interesting is, is that I would say the substantial bulk of evangelicalism across the board, no matter what your eschatolo- eschatological framework is, has, has recognized the value and the contribution of what inaugurated eschatology means for the church and for theology yeah. and for ethics. And so You're saying as a um, result of his work? Not well. No, I actually think this is pre this is the pre-result. This is before his work even came along. What he's done is to show the value of it and the depth of yeah. it. But but it's but it was there and it's been a part of, you know, people want to say, well they want they either want to blame or bless George Ladd for it. Yeah. Okay. Now no, it predates that discussion goes back to the late 19th and early 20th century mm. to Germans like Weiss. And then there's Eric Sauer, who's a dispensationalist, probably a precursor to us as progressive dispensationalist, who is a Swiss dispensationalist. There, these are people who recognized that element of what was going on in Scripture. Yeah, that's great. I mean, for, for me, it, it was just so helpful and it really helped me actually hang on to my dispensationalism because I was struggling with all mm-hmm. of those things. I mean, at 17 years old, I've got all these like weird negative things I picked up from the cultural pop dispensationalism that, you know, McKnight critiques in that piece. And when I read right, you know, I didn't throw away my dispensationalism, but I started 
bringing in this idea of, you know, the kingdom of God and Jesus is like, like with dispensationalism in the current state I've saw it in, it was like, I only saw the kingdom of God as this future place that I go to. And right now I just got to survive until the rapture because the world is bad. And when I started to realize like Jesus is king and he's doing things right here and right now, and he's calling me to be a part of it. Like it just exactly it right. revolutionized yep, my nope. faith. That, yep, nope, very much the case. And we were, if you read the last chapter of progressive dispensationalism, where we make this ethical pitch for the tradition, we're saying very much the same mm-hmm. thing. I love that. final question probably for this episode and then Mike maybe I'll pass it to you for for you to give one more final question but here's my wrap-up question for those of us who are committed to a dispensationalist view and maybe some of you guys listening maybe you're you already are realizing like oh I am a progressive dispensationalist I just didn't know it I didn't have the terminology for it yet but for for people who want to remain in dispensationalism and that's going to be most of the the Calvary crew what would you say would be the fix for the massive hangover of like the left behind days that's kind of caused a lot of young people coming up in dispensationalist churches to adopt these negative views. Like how would you encourage pastors to hang on to the view and teach it well, but in a way that lifts all of that baggage and just helps them understand the, the core truths and maybe infusing, you know, some of that inaugurated eschatology into it. How would you encourage people? Care about the great commission. Mm recognize that in order to undertake the Great Commission, you've got to engage with people outside the church. Mm-hmm. Do it and make this distinction. Distinguish between trying to understand where someone is coming from and be a good listener for where they are versus viewing that and the effort it takes to do that as seeing that as agreeing with them. It's not the same thing. So, so if I'm making an effort to understand someone and where they're coming from so I can build bridges for the gospel and engage them and understand what's driving them, what I'm looking for are values mm-hmm. that connect to the gospel. They may turn it and twist it in a certain way, but the value might be there. Mm-hmm. And, and if you have a different way of holding on to that value, you can engage in a conversation that can lead to the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, so value the Great Commission. The world also is infused with elements of common grace mm, yeah. that you need to recognize. So when a disaster happens and people of all faiths and stripes work to rescue people and work with one another, you need to see that as the image of God, how can I say this, kind of flickering through um, in, in the way people treat one another, et cetera. Recognize that. The world being fallen doesn't mean it's as bad as it possibly could be mm. or that people are always the worst. Mm. It simply means things are out of balance. Good. Things are misaligned. So look for the things that, that build towards alignment mm. and see if you can interact at that basis with people who are on the outside. That's good. Thank you so yeah. much. That's, that's all my questions for this episode, Thank Mike. You. 
If you want to wrap us up with something, go for it. That, I think, makes a perfect conclusion to what we've said. I do have a question that would be more of a PS at the end of the letter. <laughs> okay. That, again, would be off subject. <laughs> okay. But since I have you here and I don't know when I'm going to get this chance again, I have to ask you <laughs> if that's okay. And so I, it's, it's, just, it's just something that I've been thinking about. And as I've been listening you know, to the Table podcast as well, and uh, some of you are dealing with cultural. Also the fact, you know, that I'm a, a, an American pastor overseas, you know, we have a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a delay from the things that happen in the U.S. from when they come over here, and they eventually <laughs> do, you know. Even in France, there's a, a, an idea of wokeness, which is 100% French, mm. but everybody knows where it comes from, you know. And anyway, so one of the things, the things, and, and I, this, it might be too philosophical, I suppose, for the, the podcast, but again, it's probably just more for me. We did a whole series um, on postmodernism on this podcast, so you, you can't get too philosophical here. Go for it. Okay, <laughs> cool. All right. Well, okay. Well, then, you know, you know, it, it's, you know, as I'm looking, you know, as we see some of the things that have come up, and I think that, you know, Jeff Geip and, and his isms that cause schisms podcast brought out that well about the idea of existentialism philosophy and how it really put the the center on me and self-realization and and that how it even seeped into the church and so when he said that my next thought was well yeah but it also seems that you know the postmodern condition by François Lyotard was also just another step in this direction where we just begin to question everything. You know, I think I, I remember well, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, you know, we were just taught to, to think critically. And 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 so when I look at that and I, I look at, at, at some of the eschatological hermeneutic, I, I wonder, you know, how much of it is truly biblical how much is cultural mm. and how much is just the continuation of, of these you know of, of the world's philosophies that have become so ingrained that there are presuppositions yeah that's a challenging question there are layers to what you're su suggesting let me let me see if i can unpack it a little bit i tell my audiences now that when i'm talking about cultural engagement that we shouldn't be surprised that the world is where it is. Mm -hmm. That when you, when you pull the idea off the table that we're made in the image of God, there's an orderliness to the creation, that there's a rhyme and a reason to what's happening around us. Mm -hmm. What are you left with? What's the alternative? The only alternative is to create your own identity. When you add that to the West's focus on the individual, okay? And France, when I think of France and I think of Liberté <laughs> and I think about what that represents, the Enlightenment Revolution, et cetera, the focus on the individual that came out of that, that's defined the West in many ways. I tell people you shouldn't be surprised that people are consumed with their identity and they're also struggling to find it simultaneously. Because if you listen to people who you have conversations with, they'll say, I'm trying to find myself, you know, 
all right, we, you know, I mean, you listen to those words and you go, what in the world could I, I mean, you're right here. I mean, you know, but we, we all know what that language means. I'm trying to figure out where I fit in the world. You know, the, that's, that's the natural. And, and then the landing point is, well, just define yourself. <laughs> define who you are and take your stand. Here I stand, I can do no other, okay? That's the individualized world that we live in. So we shouldn't be surprised that that becomes the alternative, okay? And then what grows out of that is chaos mm. because it's the world of judges. Mm. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Everyone defines who they are in their own terms. And it's like a thousand cars being on a highway with no rules. So, you know, I mean, you, you can't drive that way. You can't get anywhere that way if everybody's just doing their own thing. So, so that's what I think we're, we're, we're dealing with. And some of that is so absorbed. This is the second point. Some of that is so absorbed that sometimes it's hard to tell when we're doing it because mm. it's just so deep in the air that we're breathing. So we have to watch out for it. We've got to have a critical spirit. You've got to have discerning. That's why you need community. That's why you need diversity. That's why you need people who see the world differently than you do to engage with, et cetera, because they help you with your blind spots, all that kind of thing. So that was a hodgepodge of an answer, but that's that's what I think in the end is kind of what, what you're doing. It's hard to know. Some of it probably has seeped into the church by default. It probably seeps into the church in different ways in different parts of the world because that's a reflection of the cultures that they're each a part of. But it's there, and that's one of the values of the global church is that it, it can protect the church against itself in the variety of perspectives that can then come onto the table when, you're, when you keep a broad engagement with people different than you. People different than you, but people who share the same core commitments that you have. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I th- as I was this. listening to Mike's question and then your answer and trying to piece it together, the stuff that comes to my mind, at least in our American context, is a lot of times, in dis- like, like we talked about, when dispensationalism goes wrong, there can be that self-centered her- hermeneutic where it's like, you're just like, how does this affect America? Like, you know, yeah. well, the things that are going on in the news, like I'm looking at Revelation, what does this mean for me and my bank account and my economy and my future and my family? And it's it, it can be very self-centered. And then the whole postmodern thing is, you know, everyone's got their own truth. And so, you know, you can just speculate and have all these different theories and really graft onto them. And I think what I hear you saying, Daryl, is you're, you're calling us to fix our eyes on what we know to be true which is the kingdom of Mm -hmm. God and Jesus, and let that be the main thing that drives our hermeneutic more than anything else. And be in dialogue with other people who share those same core commitments. I mean, I'm not traveling as an island through the exercise. That's good. And so that's that's really important. And, And to accept the challenge of someone having the same core commitments that I have, but maybe putting the package together a little differently than I do. That's good. That's good. Thank you so much for being on the show, Daryl. Well, Mike, what, what do you think? Are you a progressive dispensationalist? <laughs> I find it to be pretty convincing, yes. I, I, I took a quiz, and apparently yeah. I am, so there we go. But uh, Daryl, <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Buck, yeah. thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Are, are there any books or, or resources you'd want to point the audience to before you go? 
I think the one book that I point them to that I did is a book called Cultural Intelligence, How to Live for God in a Diverse, Pluralistic World, mm-hmm. which is an attempt to articulate a very basic theology of cultural engagement, which we don't have in the church, and then ask the question, how do I interact with someone who's coming from a completely different place than I am and have a chance of having a good conversation with that person? What are, how do conversations work? What are five things I do that will kill that conversation? What are five things I can do to advance that conversation? It's a little 150-page book. It can be read in a few hours and it's it's the core of when i go to a church for a weekend i do a three-part presentation it's a core of what i do there so Love that's it. some of the that now that's not on eschatology that's about engagement but in the end if you've got your eschatology together you're going to be you're going to be engaging hopefully you're going to be engaging in two ways you're going to be engaging people and you're going to be an engaging person to engage with right. And so, uh, so this helps you to do that. Well, after a long conversation on eschatology like this, I think most people listening are like, yes, give me something that's not about eschatology. Get something more practical. So that's yeah, great. You thank go. you so much for being here. Mike, thank you for My prepping pleasure. this and coming up with these questions. I'm, I'm so excited to read what you write based on all this, man. It's going to be great. Thanks for being here and thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. We hope this episode has encouraged and challenged you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Our goal and heart for the show is to always be pointing you to the God who is not safe, but who is very, very good. If you enjoyed this show, we would so appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. The more reviews we get, the more people are able to find the show. So please leave a review. It helps so much. The Good Line Podcast is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. And we are a part of CGN Media. For more great content, visit cgnmedia.org. For more from Good Lion Ministries, you can also find tons of podcasts, resources, courses, and more at our ministries website, goodlion.org. If you'd like to support the work that we do, please visit goodline.org support. With your help, we can continue pointing people to Jesus and providing thought-provoking resources for the church. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this episode helped you on your journey of following Jesus. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on him.